Bruce Fine, let me start with you and what that U.S. District Judge ruled. Have you ever seen anything like this? I don't think, and I've been practicing law almost 50 years, uh, this is the most egregious violation in history. The number of people affected is the ten hundreds of millions, if not more, maybe billions, who use you know, social media. Because those who were involved in this suppression endeavor, you know, it's Google, it's YouTube, it's uh, Twitter, it's Facebook, it's Meta, it's TikTok, it's Instagram, all the huge companies with huge number of, of, uh, of users. Uh, and basically you had on a daily basis uh, the government sitting down with the content monitors of these social media behemoths and saying, all right, we need to have this stricken, this stricken, this is false, this is misleading, this is going to corrupt the, with the mental infrastructure of the American people because they won't think right about our, our support for Ukraine. I mean, it was just truly amazing, the depth. And the district court made 100 pages of findings. Uh, it's really, really quite stunning how thorough and, and, and close the collaboration was, and you could understand it's why. The social media companies look, hey, we resist what the Biden administration is asking. They'll file an antitrust suit against us. It'll cost a lot of money. Our stock price will go down. We'll lose some of the safe harbor of Section 230. That's, not risk that's too risky. So let's just do what the government wants, and that's the censorship that the district court found. Cash, they were behaving like a good stop a government. <laughs> Uh, I laugh, but it's tragic. Yeah. I, and, and here's, the, you know, from my perspective as a former federal prosecutor and public defender, a judicial opinion is what you can sell to the public as real evidence. When we were talking about it back in the day, whether I was doing Russiagate and we said, look, Facebook and Twitter are all up in the election stuff. Everybody's like, ah, whatever. Nobody wants to listen to Congress. And then fast forward to the last cycle's election when we found out the FBI had an 80-person task force for election integrity that met with Twitter and Facebook every week and nudged them on what to censor. Even though that was a reality we proved, there is nothing like a judicial opinion, as Bruce was saying. A hundred pages of egregious conduct. Whether the media will cover it or not is not the issue. The fact is the American people will receive this headline and say, okay, our government is participating in censorship. Will they care? Because you highlighted the point that is of critical importance. It's just conservatives. They're not censoring the liberal agenda. And I think this case will actually get appealed up the, up the chain because it's such an important issue. But this judge actually just denied injunctive relief for the DOJ. They wanted them to set aside his verdict, his ruling, while they appealed the case. They just said, absolutely not. There's too many violations of free speech here. It's pretty shocking. If I could add, Armstrong, it continues. That is, uh, after the lawsuit was brought, the government did not desist in any way from continuing these daily meetings to suppress speech. As we're speaking right now, I'm sure the same thing, absent the, the injunction, would be continuing. Um, and uh, that's what makes this so astonishing. And I want to pause just for a second on this Orwellian notion of the, inf the, the mental cognitive infrastructure of the American people being worthy of content moderation. Cognitive infrastructure, that's the equivalent of what anybody <laughs> believes for, across the board, any political idea. And this is kind of, kind of built upon the called the cyber infrastructure, which is what the government's supposed to be looking at and protecting against hacking. Now cognitive infrastructure, you know, a synonym for, yeah, it's what we call free speech and freedom of ability to think for yourself. You know, um, Sam Fattis, Erdogan today dropped his opposition uh, for Sweden being admitted 
and welcome into NATO. Why did he do it? What did he get in return? What does this mean for Sweden? And what does it mean for NATO? For some time, basically trying to impose impose uh, restrictions on or dictate the behavior of Sweden in regard to Islamists and Islam and so forth. And so he's basically holding them hostage, holding them hostage for this. I mean, I think it's, it's look, it, it lays bare a variety of things. Let's start with this. Uh, I think we really have to ask ourselves as much as we don't want to, why is Turkey actually in NATO? At this point, I understand the strategic significance, but when you get to the point where you have a country that's basically holding you hostage over domestic and I think considerations that we do not share, um, you got to go back to basics and you got to think about this. So we shouldn't knuckle, NATO should not knuckle under, they probably will. But what is this, what message does this send to Putin? Well, I mean, I, I think the broader question, Armstrong, that you and I have talked about for a long time is what exactly is the message we are trying to send to Putin and what exactly are we trying to do with NATO, right? I mean, I'm not, as I've said many times on your show, I'm no friend of Vladimir Putin's. He's a thug. His fantasy of reconstituting the old Soviet Union, okay, I don't share that. Nobody shares that. But what precisely is the the strategic calculus at play here when we are constantly building a bigger, more aggressive NATO closer and closer to Moscow. Like, there's only one consideration that should matter to us as Americans. Are we safer at, as Americans at the end of the day? And obviously, demonstrably, the answer is no. I mean, we now have a war in Ukraine basically brought on, I would s suggest to you, again, as no friend of Putin's, by the fact that we keep poking closer and closer to Moscow. And ever since the war in Ukraine started, we have continued that trend. Like we keep adding new nations on on, on Putin's doorstep. So, I mean, the, the logic is completely missing here. What is the calculus? The only thing that matters is, are Americans safer at the end of the day because of these decisions? In my book, the answer is no. You know, John Keyes, uh, now the Biden administration has approved these cluster bombs. And what is... Uh, Interesting about all this, the United Kingdom had already sent um, these cluster bombs to uh, to Ukraine. I mean, you know, some people feel that many of these cluster bombs will end up in the hands of the Russians, and it mean, in many ways it plays right into the Russians' gamemanship. Armstrong, that's a great point. I'm not sure what the policy is, but when you introduce a new weapons platform, something like this that is an area weapon it's offensive and it's indiscriminate when you distribute that onto the battle space you are ignoring the reality that you will have collateral casualty and we are not looking at this i don't think on the impact of it if you introduce these into the battle space people aren't talking about it anymore but Putin has moved nuclear weapons to Belarus. So if you escalate the cluster munitions and you start killing civilians, what what is it that you expect to occur? Will this advance our policy goals, whatever they have to be? Or will it trigger the use of a tactical nuclear weapon? 
Hey, so uh, John's audio has the hiccups, but I'm sure we'll work through it. But you were wanted to add to I've that. I've got a bad. Yeah, look, I've called this. I've called the invasion into Ukraine what's going to be America's next Afghanistan, next two-decade war. And I think it's cute, too cute by half for politicians in Washington to say we're not in a war. You know, we're, we're, we're just on the one-yard line. We have just sent them weapons of war. The United Nations has specifically prohibited the use of cluster munitions because they are such an invasive weapon of war. And the United States of America, whatever your politics are, has decided now to send these weapons to the Ukraine, along with the surface-to-air missile, the defense batteries, the munitions, the tanks, and the millions of rounds of ammunition and armor-piercing artillery. Those are all weapons of war. If we're not assisting in the war, then what are we doing? My point to people is we are in this conflict it's how we engage when politicians want to say, we're not really in it, but we're sending $115 billion. The rest of the world actually called on Joe Biden to stop, to reverse the order to send cluster bombs because it is such a destructive device. We use these things to wipe out swaths of al-Qaeda in the Afghanistan desert and Iraqi desert places. These are massive aerial ordinances. This is a big deal. You know, I just heard Biden announce, um, Sam, that the Taliban is working to defeat al-Qaeda. Was that a, a senile moment? <laughs> you know, the world we live in, Armstrong, that's the sad thing, isn't it? If we could just convince ourselves that that's just a senile old man who has no idea what he's saying, that would actually be the best case scenario, right? Unfortunately, I don't think that's what it is. I mean, we are lied to consistently by this administration across the board on massive things. Tr reality is irrelevant now. I mean, the Taliban themselves are terrorists. A whole bunch of the senior guys, the Haqqanis, for example, are actually on our most wanted list with <laughs> bounties of millions of dollars on them because they're designated international terrorists. So the idea that those guys are hunting down other terrorists or helping us is ludicrous. But also all the available evidence, it shows that, no, look, I mean, what, what would common sense tell you? Al-Qaeda has a safe haven. Saif al-Adil, who is functionally their leader now, is set up there. They have at least five training camps. They've got a minimum of hundreds of guys. I would bet probably more like thousands of guys. They're already training the Pakistani Taliban that's waging war inside Pakistan with the express goal of toppling the government Islamabad and establishing another Islamic Emirate. I mean, by the way, we saw this movie. I mean, I lived this movie as a counterterrorism operative in the run up to 9-11, where we could see what was coming, if you will, generally, and we're constantly saying we need to do something and then just being told to look away, do nothing. Operations were turned down. We gave them breathing space. Almost 3,000 Americans had to die before we decided we were actually going to get serious about this. Now we're just, we're being fed this garbage and it's, it's horrifying. I would just say this. You mentioned that I was the head of CIA's weapons of mass destruction terrorism unit. Okay, look, 9-11 was never intended to be the end game. That wasn't the worst thing Al-Qaeda had planned. They were working on acquiring nuclear weapons. They had chemical weapons programs. They continued biological warfare programs for years after 
Their ambitions go to killing Americans by the tens and hundreds of thousands. And it's entirely possible if you leave them alone. And that's that's the God's honest, horrifying truth of where we are with this guy in the Oval Office. You know, you're gonna, you must ask yourself as we go to break, why would such intelligent, highly educated people who are surrounding this president put policies in place that is to the detriment of not only to Americans and their safety and well-being, but to the rest of the world? I mean, you would actually want to believe that what we're, maybe we're out of touch. But obviously, if you look at the reality of the situation, what is their agenda? Are they the tools of some foreign government? Why are they putting these things in place that is just an anathema to everything that who we are as America, and especially our global foreign interests going forward? Is it money? Is it power? The industrial complex, why put policies in place that could destroy this nation, Bruce Fire? Well, I don't think we have really competent leadership. I think this is um, an aimless uh, foreign policy. It just is day-to-day -day improvisation, you know, what they think will look good on the front pages. Uh, and this is <laughs> a form of chaos, if you will. Uh, the president and the Secretary of State, they shout from the mountaintops, we want a rule-based international order. And then we resort to cluster bombs, which is pointed out is violation of a treaty that's been signed by over 123 nations. Um, we lecture uh, Putin that he needs to go to the ICC for war crimes, and then we ourselves are complicit uh, in war crimes with the shipping of the cluster bombs. Um, and the president also continually praises the United States as the model for others to operate. Tash has pointed out that we are what in international law is called co-belligerents with Ukraine in fighting the Russians. Well, if you're at war, you need a congressional declaration, which Biden has never asked for and has never gotten. So he's running an unconstitutional war. Um, it's unfortunate, and I do not believe that Mr. Biden uh, has elicited any confidence by the American people of his ability to run the country. You know, I, I watched, you know, you watched the president. I saw him on CNN um, yesterday, and as he was trying to justify why he was sending those cluster munitions to Ukraine, he also said that America had a great deficiency of artillery, including cluster bombs. And then I said to myself, well, if that's the truth, why would the President of the United States, Sam Fattis, if unless it's again, and I keep saying this, a senile moment, why would he reveal this? And I can understand if it's a senile moment, because he can't help himself. Armstrong, I hope to God that the explanation for the, the question you're, you're asking here generally is incompetence. Again, in this weird world we live in, I think that would be the good news. But at this stage in this administration, having if you walk through every foreign policy and national security decision that's been made, I would suggest to you, you would be hard pressed to find a single one that wasn't to our detriment. So I, I honestly think at this point, as much as I don't even want to bring it up, you have to consider deliberate malfeasance. The issue of munitions, we keep talking about sending stuff to Ukraine. We don't talk about where it's coming from. So leaving aside the morality of it, the legality of it, everything else, where is it physically coming from? It's coming out of our war stocks. 
We are literally creating stuff pre-positioned in South Korea and in Israel for a Middle Eastern war and shipping it to Ukraine. Our defense industrial base is nowhere near capable of replacing those items one for one. So we're years now of vulnerability on Javelin missiles, artillery shells, I could go on. We're leaving our troops in a position, if we go to war, we're not gonna have what we need to fight with. And we're gonna be in this position for years now. Cash? To pick up on Sam's point, just to give you a specific example, um, surface-to-air missiles that we use in our defense battery systems. If we stopped today and didn't send any to anybody, it would take us seven years for us, the United States, to replenish our reserves just on what we sent to the Ukraine. So to your earlier question of why, why do we do it? Look, as a chief of staff at the Defense Department with the no-fail mission, I learned a couple of things. One, I'll be the first to say the defense industrial complex helps us achieve our no-fail mission. Without them, we could not do it. But I will also be the first person to tell you that the defense industrial complex, in my opinion, is the reason why Washington goes to war. They are bigger than any lobbying industry and all the rest of them combined. That is why you see Democrats and Republicans coming together because they fundraise for them like you've never seen. And in their jurisdiction lies the factories, the manufacturing plants, the equipment, the manning, the jobs are, are throughout the United States of America. So it's almost like a self-licking ice cream cone. No one wants to go to war, but Congress keeps funding these war machines. And it's good for politics. Now, in terms of a national security strategy, um, I think the Biden administration, yes, is incredibly inept, but I think it's even a little more sinister. I just take, for example, my time in the Trump administration in national security positions. The Biden administration has literally said, we're just going to do the opposite. I give you the Afghan withdrawal. We were running it successfully, methodically based on intelligence. We handed it off to them and said, call it the Biden withdrawal. We don't need our name on it. This is too important of a no-fail mission. And they said, no, we're, not, we're just going to do the opposite. They didn't even listen to us. So when you have leaders who know how to read the intelligence, they're not dumb, when you have policy decisions that are crafted by dozens of people in and out of government and they are rejected wholesale, I agree with your colleagues that it is not just ineptitude. It is a sinister, evil, intentional decision to do this but when you have a mainstream media willing to dress it all up as the greatest thing ever for global diplomacy, and then you have the likes of MSNBC, I saw Chris Hayes talking about, or Chris Matthews, excuse me, saying how America has never been better overseas in terms of leadership. I could not disagree more, but that's what America and the world are being told um, with the disinformation campaigns that couple this egregious conduct um, by the Biden administration. If I could add, Armstrong, see, that was one of the areas that was covered by the judge's order in the Louisiana case on the suppression of free speech, that it started out with COVID-19 and election integrity, but then it broke through the barriers and started to go into Ukraine, uh, global warming, and all sorts of other things. There wasn't any limiting principle, and still isn't, as to what the government believes is necessary to prevent contamination of our cognitive infrastructure as Americans. Um, so, and this is an example, I think, where the government simply does not want any criticism with regard to the Ukraine policy. So, Sam Faddis, uh, why would the mainstream media, knowing what is at stake, 
Do they not understand the consequences of these policies? Is it that they don't understand? They don't care? Are they so in the tank with this administration that they just turn blindness to the truth? Yeah, look, I, I don't think you, at this stage with the scope of what we're talking about that you could say they just don't understand. I mean, you know, I hate the word existential because it gets overused dramatically. But good God, we're, we're actually now talking about things that are, are truly existential that this administration has managed to do to the republic in a stunningly brief period of time. So I, I can't imagine that you really don't understand that. I think they're completely in the tank. I think they're bought and paid for. I I would echo what Cash said about the influence of the what is now what we call the military industrial complex, right? I mean, who's your secretary of defense right now? He's Raytheon's secretary of defense. I mean, he retired and went to work. He was around the board of directors and now he's at, at the Pentagon. So Raytheon runs your runs your Pentagon and we could extrapolate from there. Lord Austin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, where are we in the world? I want to stay with you, Sam, if this continues. Truly catastrophic things are already happening. I mean, it, you know, you don't have to exaggerate or engage in hyperbole. We're at, at any moment we can watch the Iranians become a nuclear weapons power. In fact, actually, the reality is probably that our intelligence is not good enough to know whether they're already a nuclear power. Um, Afghanistan is once a terrorist, once again, a terrorist safe haven. Pakistan is teetering. I mean, at this point, you could have a nuclear weapons state like Pakistan overtaken by Islamic jihadists and they get an arsenal of, we'll call it 200 nuclear weapons, right? On any given day, we're seriously having rhetoric back and forth with the Russians about possible use of nuclear weapons, the kind of stuff that used to be regarded as like a big deal and kind of a crisis and we better grab a hold of that and resolve it but now we just kind of blow past it i mean the chinese are either going to invade taiwan or in my book they're just going to impose a blockade of taiwan and shut it down and who's going to break that blockade right joe biden is going to order the seventh fleet to go break a chinese blockade <laughs> of taiwan i mean this kind of that just could go on and on and on with this kind of stuff southern border is wide open people ask me all the time what kind of terrorist threat could come across the southern border my answer is imagine any terrorist threat that could possibly exist that could come across the border what would stop it there's nothing to stop it we are wide open bio nuke chem radiological anything i mean that's the real world but as you guys all say co completely correctly most of the media pretends like none of this is happening, like there's nothing to see here. You know, Biden is in Europe. He was with King Charles today. The reason why the king did not roll out the royal carpet, because it was not an official state visit. Biden just stopped through. But what can Biden accomplish at NATO? I don't think he's going to accomplish anything except achieve more headlines that will sing him praises in certain sectors of the U.S. for an election purpose. NATO, you know, I'm glad we brought this up again, never to defend Vladimir Putin or his actions. But when uh, the wall fell and peace was established, the, de the decision that they made was that the Western countries would not encroach upon the USSR, what would become Russia in any way, shape, or form. In the last 30 years, we have added half a dozen countries to NATO, um, violating the agreement 
we made, the United States of America and the world made with the leaders of the Soviet Union and Russia at the time. So from his perspective, when the President of the United States goes over there and says, well, we will accept the Ukraine and possibly others into NATO um, if they do X, Y, and Z, all you're doing is feeding the fodder and propaganda machine for Vladimir Putin to say, from my perspective, I'm going to continue this war because you have violated this agreement. And the people in Russia, I believe, see it that way, or at least in large part, because they were raised there. They went through that. They lived through the fall of the Soviet Union, and now they are seeing their country being eroded. And again, not justifying it, but just saying their perspective. That's how they look at it. So Joe Biden going over there and fanning these flames of NATO membership, et cetera, is doing one thing. It's giving him headlines in the Washington media circuit here in the mainstream media, and it's making him look good with leaders like Trudeau and um, Macron in France, but it's not accomplishing anything to actually get us out of the conflict there. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.